Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. This podcast is part of our 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series. Connecticut and Puerto Rico have strong ties. Today, my guest is Pablo Delano, a visual artist, photographer, and educator who is recognized for his use of Connecticut and Puerto Rican history in his work, including his 2020 book of photography, Hartford Scene, published by Wesleyan University Press. Born and raised in Puerto Rico, he is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Fine Arts at Trinity College in Hartford. His work has been shown in solo exhibitions and in museums and galleries in the United States, Europe, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Over the course of 20 years, Delano amassed a substantial archive of artifacts related to a century of Puerto Rican history. Using this material, including three-dimensional objects, newspaper clippings, and photographs, he created the Museum of the Old Colony, a dynamic, site-specific art installation that examines the complex and fraught history of U.S. colonialism, paternalism, and exploitation in Puerto Rico. The title is a play on words, referencing both the island's political status and Old Colony, a popular local soft drink. The work is also deeply personal, a means for Delano to better understand and to come to terms with the troubling history of Puerto Rico. In the end, according to the critic Maurice Berger, the story liberates the story of a people from the limitations and blind spots of history, traditional museums, and popular culture. Pablo was chosen by Connecticut Explored as a Connecticut History Game Changer honoree in celebration of the magazine's 20th anniversary. Professor Delano has been featured on Grading the Nutmeg in episode 123 discussing his book of photographs, Hartford Scene, and in episode 152, Hartford and Puerto Rico, a conversation between Pablo and Puerto Rican historian Elena Rosario. Welcome to the podcast. The full exhibition of the Museum of the Old Colony is currently on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Puerto Rico. While we might not be able to travel to see the exhibition in person, the University of Virginia Press has published a beautiful full-color catalog that includes a collection of very insightful essays edited by Laura Katzman, as well as photos of the exhibition when it was on display at James Madison University. It's available for purchase on Amazon. I recommend it. Before we dive into the conversation with Pablo, I want to share a very brief history of Puerto Rico taken from Laura Katzman's essay in the catalog. I don't believe I was ever really taught about the history of the territories the United States controls, including Puerto Rico. The island of Puerto Rico resides in the West Indies as the smallest and most eastern of the Greater Antilles chain. Puerto Rico is actually an archipelago, a group of islands situated between the Caribbean Sea and the North Atlantic Ocean. It lies east of the Dominican Republic, west of the Virgin Islands, and north of Venezuela, and is 1,000 miles southeast of the U.S. state of Florida. The main island extends east to west approximately 110 miles, and from north to south about 40 miles. Puerto Rico boasts a tropical marine climate, extraordinary geographic biodiversity, with breathtaking beaches. 
1493, Christopher Columbus and his large expedition claimed Puerto Rico for the Spanish crown. 400 years of largely Spanish colonial rule had profound impact on Puerto Rican language, religion, agriculture, architecture, and cultural traditions. The Spanish-American War served as a final blow to the Spanish Empire and catalyzed the rise of United States imperialism when the U.S. military invaded Puerto Rico, seizing it along with Guam as a possession. Puerto Rico, in legal terms, is an unincorporated territory of the United States whose people have held U.S. citizenship since the Jones Act of 1917. Since 1952, with the ratification of its own constitution, Puerto Rico was officially deemed a commonwealth, a status that brought a degree of self-government. The largest population of the 16 U.S. territories, it has close to 3.3 million people. Pablo, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up in Puerto Rico? Sure. Well, I had a, a wonderful childhood. Grew up in the countryside outside of San Juan, surrounded by fruit trees and a lot of greenery and tropical breezes, so to speak. I also had the opportunity to hang out in the old city of San Juan with friends and run up and down the streets and uh, learn, learn the grid of that ancient historic city you know, by heart. My parents were artists and uh, had a pretty active social life, so I got to meet a lot of uh, dancers and other artists and performers and musicians as a child and sort of listen in on their conversations. One of the experiences that I remember vividly was one, one visit that uh, my parents took me to the uh, Museum of Natural History in San Juan, which was in a little Spanish colonial fort out in Muñoz Rivera Park. And it was a kind of a museum that contained a lot of uh, taxidermied animals, which was really kind of creepy and um, odd, but fascinating at the same time. And I often wonder to what degree that um, experience uh, led to this current project so many decades later. So maybe you could tell us what's the difference between an art installation and an art exhibition. And are they the same thing or they're not the same thing? They are and they aren't the same thing. I'm glad you asked because um, this project that we're gonna talk about today is an art installation. Well, basically the difference is that an art installation incorporates the space as a fundamental part of the art. An art exhibition might be when an artist arrives in a museum or a gallery with the artwork and just places it on the wall or places it, uh, distributes it throughout the space. But an art installation involves um, a deliberate use of the space itself. So the, the, the gallery or the museum itself becomes the artwork rather than just putting the artwork into the space, the space becomes the artwork. So obviously, uh, if the artwork is, uh, is displayed in a different gallery, then the artwork necessarily must change because it needs to adapt and incorporate the space of that particular gallery or museum or, or place. One of your most, I think, clever ideas, and it took me a minute as a historian to catch on to it, was that you created this idea that you would present this art piece as a fake museum, a fictive museum. So you're not walking into 
a history museum to see these things. It is in its entirety an art installation, but it also has serious and deep messages. How did you come up with the idea of creating a fake museum? Well, uh, it took a long time. And I guess it started about 20, 25 years ago when I began to collect materials that were created by U.S. Uh, officials in Puerto Rico to um, document and create a visual record of what the island looked like in order to uh, disseminate them in the mainland United States as a means of propaganda. In other words, to try to uh, demonstrate to the people of uh, North America that uh, the United States um, should have an empire, should have colonies. Uh, many of these materials that I began to collect echoed uh, the colonialist and imperialist attitude of the colonial overlord and also resembled in many ways what was being produced in Great Britain uh, regarding their colony in India uh, and other places around the world. It wasn't that long after the invention of photography people understood that photography for example could be used as a tool, uh, as a propaganda means. The images were quite shocking and quite terrible and were largely unknown. So I felt it was important to do something with them, but I didn't know what. But I became fascinated with them and started to collect them. The other uh, sort of formative element was my travels and traveling around the world and visiting museums, in particular uh, ethnographic museums, so-called ethnographic museums, which often had a very powerful agenda. I think that all museums have a story to tell, and then the question becomes whose story is told and how is it told. And often in uh, countries that had empires or colonies, the uh, uh, subtext of the museum was to buttress and support this whole idea that the country with the power was superior somehow and that the people that were colonized were inferior. And that uh, the, the exercise of colonialism was somehow um, uh, noble, that the purpose of colonialism was somehow to uplift these downtrodden, inferior people who, of course, were often darker. Uh, so I was quite horrified by this, and I found many museums that were constructed around these ideas that weighed heavily on me. So as I collected these other materials, I spent really years uh, thinking about how they might be deployed, how they might be used in a, in, a, in a fashion that would turn them upon themselves. So I collected hundreds of uh, photographs from books and magazines and other sources, even digital online archives, uh, with the intent to use them in some kind of artwork at some point never being quite sure how, but quite sure why, which was to bring the, bring the attention of the public to the patronizing attitude that they represented. So that coincided with um, uh, another sort of fascination I had, which was the fact that I grew up, you asked about my childhood, I grew up drinking a, a soda, a soda that was very sweet called Old Colony Soda. This was a soda that was bought to, brought to Puerto Rico in... Um, the 50s or late 40s, probably to be sold on military bases because it was a brand that was popular in the southern United States and the brand was Old Colony. The brand is no longer sold in the U.S. mainland, it's out of business, but a local uh, company bought the license to the trademark and is still sold to this day. 
under the under the brand of Old Colony. The logo of the uh, of the soda is um, a colonist, a U.S. colonist with a three-cornered hat. And uh, I found this always to be incredibly ironic that in the oldest colony in the world, people were consuming this terrible beverage that was really bad for you. It was full of uh, not even sugar, but corn sweetener now uh, and artificially flavored. And in the main, the most popular flavor was grape, which is not even grown in the tropics. So somehow the idea to put that together with all of this collection of materials that I had in a in a fictional museum that was a takeoff on these ethnographic museums that I had gotten to know through my travels, it somehow gelled. Of course, there was another important influence, which is Trinidad Carnival, uh, and that's another conversation. But the carnival and the carnivalesque was a, a powerful thread that runs through the work. So explain the meaning of the project. It's called the Museum of the Old Colony. And I know immediately my mind as a historian goes to a bricks and mortar type of museum. But the name of this piece is the Museum of the Old Colony. So what does that say to you? The Museum of the Old Colony title is uh, reflective of the content of the artwork. Of course, it's not a bricks and mortar museum. It's a performative museum and it's a premise, but it's a premise based on the idea of what museums are. Museums in our imagination are temples of beauty or temples of power. They are often shaped like Greek temples. They, they, uh, they physically resemble uh, churches or temples. They're imposing even new museums that are done in a modern architectural style uh, are imposing their enormous structures. And they inspire a kind of confidence in people. People assume that if they're going to go to a museum, they're going to be seeing um, something beautiful or something powerful or something important. But people tend not to question who chooses what goes in the museum or how the things got in into those museums, how those institutions were founded. For example, most people that go to museums are not aware that many of the things in there that are collected by museums arrived in those museums through uh, possibly illicit means or through theft or through um, plundering. And so the idea for this work of art is based on compilation of all of these ideas about museums so that it, it could be compared to say, uh, a drama about a museum. It's not a museum. It's just a piece of installation art that assumes the premise of being a museum. And therefore, I as the artist assume the role of all the people who work in a museum. So I get to be the museum director, I get to be the museum curator, I get to be the museum designer, etc. etc. I get to be the acquisitions director, and on and on. The registrar. <laughs> well that sounds like this sounds like totally a big job. But uh, one thing that really stood out to me about the way the exhibition was mounted at James Madison University was that you added so many three-dimensional items. This, uh, a small-scale version of this exhibit was done on banners, for example, in, and shown in Hartford Parks during the pandemic, so you could go outside and be safe and go see some art. Um, that is a very different thing than when you include all these three-dimensional objects. And some of those 
I want you to describe, but there's commemorative souvenirs from the 1898 Spanish-American War, uh, even toys. So how did you collect those? And what do you think they say about casual racism? Well, that's a complicated question. I'll start with a, a sort of introductory answer, which is that um, the three-dimensional objects in a way make the photographs or the images come to life. I should mention, uh, we've covered this, but it's worth repeating that none of the photographs in the exhibition are taken by me. They're all appropriated. Appropriation is, is, a, is a methodology that's used a lot in contemporary art now. We know all about artists like Richard Prince and many others who appropriate imagery from, or even Andy Warhol, who appropriates commercial imagery or the work of Instagram or commercial art, and they turn it into their own art. Sherry Levine is another example. She re-photographs Walker Evans' photographs. That's all there is, you know, and then it becomes her art simply through the act of re-photographing it out of a book. Um, so appropriation is a, a methodology that's widely used, and I uh, appropriate these historical images in the way that I've described, but also three-dimensional objects because they seem to enhance and add power to what you see in the images on the wall. The images on the wall are very large. They're th three feet across. They're often, the originals are quite small. They're in books or, you know, uh, five by seven inches, something like that. I scan them and enlarge them to quite a large size and place them into dialogue with, with the three-dimensional objects. The um, invading forces, in 1898 from the United States, largely were composed of soldiers from the South in the United States. And they brought with them a lot of Southern culture, including racist attitudes. And so that was in a way the, the, the beginning of what you see in, the, in Puerto Rico in terms of racist souvenirs. And you could find until quite recently, uh, I believe you could probably still find these kind, this kind of imagery being sold in souvenir shops. Um, which is an adaptation of the kind of racist souvenirs that were available in the United States. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, opens April 21st, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. Join history this spring on bus and walking tours, including Revolutionary Reading, the Salt Boxes of Stratford, Stamford's Mid-Century Icons, and a collection of National Register Historic Places in Fairfield. Book your tickets today at history.org. That's H-I-S-T-O-U-R-Y.org. Back to our episode. The exhibition opens with a, like an old oak desk that's just crowded with materials on the top of it. And it looks like somebody, somebody might've just walked off. Could you describe what's on the desk and how they talk to each other, these objects? When you walk into an art gallery or a museum, you often are confronted with a desk. There's sometimes a person behind it and sometimes a person has stepped away. So it, it, it occurred to me to, to uh, open the exhibit with a desk at which, and the title of that entire assemblage is the museum desk. One of the things on the desk is an ashtray filled with cigarette butts, 
which does suggest that the person has just stepped away. There's also a trash can with some crumpled up papers. But the desk is piled with objects, many militaristic in nature, because the when the United States arrived, it was a military, military occupation. And the first governors were military. They were appointed by the president until there were civilian governors that were appointed, but there were but there was a whole series of appointed governors. Uh, the desk is covered. It's kind of a meta object in the sense that it's covered with objects that reference the rest of the exhibit. For example, there are books on the desk which contain images that you can find on the wall. Of course, you don't know that because the books aren't open, but nevertheless, it's there. There's a um, there are uh, many other references to um, historical um, facts that people may not pick up on. For example, there's a, a little crystal version of the battleship Maine, which is what started the Spanish-American War when it exploded in Havana Harbor. It's a candy dish and it's filled with M&M candies uh, on all different bright colors. And for most people, that's will be what they take away. But uh, if you know a little bit about the history of M&M candies, you know that they were developed for the U.S. Army because they don't melt. Uh, and so there are layers of meaning behind all the objects on the desk. There's uh, a letter, and then there are things that happen by chance. For example, one of the professors at, the, uh, at uh, James Madison University came up to me with a beautiful pair of antique scissors that had been on her uh, on the desk of one of her relatives who had actually been a U.S. colonial official who had served in the Philippines and then later in Puerto Rico. And that became part of the installation right then and there. There are other things that are um, reminiscent of, uh, of tourism and the problematic nature of tourism. There's a bottle of um, copper tone um, suntan oil with a Native American head on it. Uh, and uh, goes on and on. There's uh, probably a hundred different objects on that desk. So one of the things that the catalog uh, pointed out to me was how the photos relate to each other and how carefully you've decided where they go. So as you said, these could be little tiny picture book type, souvenir picture book type photos, but they're, as you said, three by four feet or quite large. And they're actually posted with, I think, thumbtacks, that kind of installation. And they relate to each other. And some of the words that are used in reference in the catalogs to these images are, the images are arrogant, they're racist, they're sexist, they're misogynistic, paternalistic. When you look at those and you have to decide where they're gonna go and what wall space they're gonna occupy, what kinds of things do you think about? Well, first, I want to uh, I want to um, comment on the use of the of the pushpins. They're actually pushpins. Pushpins. There we go. They're pushpins and they're gold. The use of the color gold throughout the exhibit is very deliberate because, of course, this is something that the um, Europeans were looking for in the New World when they came to conquer. The purpose of a colony is exploitation. You know, it's what you can get uh, to take power, to take land, and to extract wealth. So. Um, the idea of um, using gold pushpins is ironic because when you go into a museum, the artwork is in gold frames. And so I'm rejecting the gold frame in favor of gold pushpins as a kind of little jab at the whole idea of museums and power and all that. Um, another thing about the exhibit is that there are um, texts that guide you through, as in most museums, there are um, 
uh, curatorial texts that sort of contextualize what you're seeing, those are written by the person who is the director of the Museum of the Old Colony, whoever that may be, and they're, they're in gold frames. So the artwork is not in frames, but the texts are in gold frames. It's a kind of inversion of what you see in museums where the labels are just on cardboard labels attached. And so everything is kind of an inversion. So that leads me to the question that you asked, which is why use all of these very deeply troubling images? And that's hopefully to invert the meaning, to point out so that so that people will see what their government in this country, especially when the exhibit is is mounted in in the United States and mainland United States, the people will see the attitude that their that their um, government endorsed and and um, circulated, uh, and hopefully people will ask themselves what is their own complicity in this whole colonial experiment. So I think that's the kind of broad way to put it, but. And speaking for myself, I can really see that because I, in myself, in the sense that I just know, I just, until I moved to Connecticut and really got to know uh, more about Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican community, it's just not something that was, that I, that I knew anything about. And I hadn't really thought about these territories that are kind of left in limbo as far as they're not sovereign nations, they're still territories, they're not states. Uh, Puerto Rican residents, when they live in Puerto Rico, can't vote, for example, for the president. But if they come to Connecticut, suddenly they can vote. You know, it's just it's all those kinds of contradictions and poor treatment overall that I was really unaware of. And so it's been a great learning experience for me. And I did get a lot out of the catalog and the, looking at those images is, is, as you said, deeply troubling. I know your work as a photographer and I know you see connections between Hartford and Puerto Rico in your, in your own work, your own photography work. But what prompted you to shift that focus of your practice from documentary photography to this conceptual art? Several factors. Um, I guess I should mention that my training is all in painting. I studied painting and drawing and printmaking, and um, I did those things even as a child because my parents were both artists, so I was encouraged to paint and draw and build things. Uh, in my uh, early 20s, I became seriously interested in photography, and obviously my much of my career has been as a documentary photographer, but that background as a painter has been very strong, so I've always had the urge to make things, and I've always been interested in color and shape and form. And thing. But, um, Part of the answer to your question has to do with something we were talking about earlier, which was what do I do with all of these things that I was collecting with no real goal except to collect them. In my mind, I knew I wanted to do something with, these, with this, with this uh, archive that I was building, uh, but I didn't know what. And so um, a confluence of factors came together and uh, I got this idea, right, based on the soda and on the... On, on my experiences that we've discussed, what really turned, I think, what the, 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 the turning point for me was the, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico, where the, uh, each uh, administration had gotten the government deeper and deeper into debt. Both uh, of the leading political parties had contributed to this. Uh, and in 2016, Obama, President Obama, signed a bill called the PROMESA Act, which imposed a kind of fiscal or economic dictatorship in Puerto Rico, in which 
uh, all financial decisions had to be taken by a, a board that was appointed by the U.S. Uh, rather than elected locally. So to me, that just seemed like a, a powerful continuation of the colonial status and, and a way of and a kind of slap in the face to the 1952 constitution, which had supposedly created a more democratic form of government. What happened uh, in the mid 20th century is that Puerto Ricans were finally allowed to elect their own governor rather than have an appointed government. And shortly thereafter, um, a new constitution was ratified. But uh, this new fiscal control board basically uh, was imposed in order to enact austerity measures to make sure the Wall Street uh, uh, and vulture, uh, vulture capitalists got repaid their debt no matter what. Um, so this was just an infuriating uh, thing that happened uh, because the outcome was cutbacks on everything. Over 400 public schools were closed, uh, and massive cuts to the university, which of course would impact the future of the everyday person and their ability to, um, to get along uh, or survive and it encouraged uh, many people to just leave. So at the same time, a new set of laws was created that encouraged investment from outside. So you have people coming in from North America, buying up land and buying up buildings and buying up real estate, raising rents, creating Airbnbs, which means that local people who had lived in certain buildings for maybe their, even their entire lives could no longer afford to live there and were evicted. Uh, and this all resulted in ma making life unbearable or almost impossible to survive. And so many people left. And we've seen a huge population decline from almost 4 million to about 3.3 or 3.2 million now. Uh, a lot of that had to do, of course, with the hurricanes. So the hurricanes, both Irma and Maria in 2017, contributed to this as well and gave me sort of more of a push to, to uh, engage with, uh, with this project. I didn't see any way to um, to address this through uh, my own photography. I could, but you know, I could go and photograph conditions there, that kind of thing. But at the same time, I was sitting on this this archive of history that I think could serve as a kind of uh, uh, eye opener for people. Not only people in the United States, as we mentioned earlier, but people in Puerto Rico. So when the exhibit opened in the Museum of Contemporary Art there shortly after the Hurricane Maria was the first, it was included in the first exhibit that opened there at the museum after Hurricane Maria in the Museum of Contemporary when they were finally able to open. I heard from a lot of um, people who visited that exhibit that that made them very angry. And that's, that was, I, I was glad because it does make you very angry when you see, when you see the historical way that um, we've been depicted. What other reactions have you had from visitors? It's very interesting because uh, it really makes a difference what what you bring to the exhibit. People who are from Puerto Rico and who who were born there, raised there, uh, have a, a whole breadth of knowledge, and so they're able to read into a lot of the subtexts and jokes, and and that's quite deliberate. I think that's something that I hope to create because it creates a space for us where we can sort of commune and understand and a kind of understanding. But even people who uh, know nothing about it and they, they, their, their response is that they can't believe it. Oftentimes people 
have a hard time believing the, the texts that are quoted in the exhibit are actual texts. They say they want to know if I wrote these texts. In response to one of the early versions of the exhibit, I actually decided to scan the text directly out of the book because then they would be in the actual typeface in the actual font and you'd actually see the surface of the paper uh, and it would give it a more, make it more real. And another component of the exhibit that's very important is the fact that everything is cited, all the sources are cited. So that uh, people who say to me, no, this couldn't be real, you made this up, you wrote it, and I can say to them, no, it was actually in this, this exact book on page such and such. And uh, the exhibit and the catalog have the exhibit checklist, which give all these sources. So it's a conceptual work of art, but part of the concept is to provide the actual sources for these images and texts that are included. Where do you want the exhibit to go next? Now you've included the three-dimensional objects, music, video, you've got, it's a very multimedia type of exhibition now. What else do you want visitors to be able to take away from the exhibition? I'm glad you mentioned the videos because we haven't talked about that much, but the videos are created in much the same way as the rest of the project. In other words, it's a, it's a remix of um, all kinds of footage that I find, historical footage and whatnot. But I'm waiting now to see what where where it develops. I I um, the the project has become huge, so the uh, next venue will have to be able to provide um, uh, support for this kind of show, uh, which means uh, enough space and right kind of lighting and be able to, the ability to project videos or have uh, monitors. I have uh, several possibilities now, but they may not work out, so I don't want to say what yeah. they are. Now there's a permanent version of the exhibit at the museum in Puerto Rico, right? It's not a permanent version. It's in their permanent collection. It's in their. It's a version in their permanent right. collection. So that, mean, that means that they own this version, which is on view now, and it's in their archives. And they can, you know, they'll they'll display it. They'll take it down, and hopefully display it. This is the second time it's been on display there. Great. I so hope that it gets more exposure, and I encourage everyone to buy the catalog because the essays and the photographs taught me a lot, and I'm sure anybody would enjoy them and get a lot out of them. I want to thank my guest, Pablo Delano. For more about his work, go to his website at museumoftheoldcolony.org. Connecticut Explored, the nonprofit organization that publishes Connecticut Explored magazine, announced its 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series, highlighting 20 game changers whose work advances the study, interpretation, and dissemination of Connecticut history. This initiative, funded by Connecticut Humanities and sponsored by Trinity College, is a centerpiece of Connecticut Explored's year-long celebration of its 20th anniversary. And of course, Pablo was one of our honorees. From a pool of about 125 entries, there were 20 chosen, and his work exemplifies the fantastic new cutting-edge work that's being done where he's using art to illuminate history and really history to illuminate art too. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. 
Fresh episodes of Creating the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Join us again in two weeks for another slice of Connecticut history.